If I've not ever met you before, again, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church, and uh, it's a thrill to be with you here this morning. Like I said, this is the Feast of Epiphany, which starts the season of Epiphany. And if you've never been in an Anglican church or a church like this before, we follow a church calendar. And today kicks off a new season, which goes until Lent, which is in about March. So we're going to be in Epiphany for a couple months. And the word Epiphany comes from the Greek word, which means manifestation or a revelation. And if I was going to draw a picture to describe this season and this word, it would be a light bulb coming up above your head. Like, ding! Think cartoon, classic, light bulb moment. That's actually, we actually use the word epiphany in that way. It means the penny has dropped. So at Christmas, Jesus comes, and we all celebrate and rejoice, but in epiphany, he's revealed. He's made manifest. He's understood Jesus opens himself up to the people. And throughout church history, the church has always begun the season of Epiphany with three stories in the Bible that the church has always understood as really clear, significant revelations or manifestations of Jesus. And that is the visitation of the Magi, which we're going to talk about today, the baptism of Jesus, which we'll talk about next week, and then the wedding at Cana. So the church has always looked at these three stories and said, at the beginning of his ministry, God is revealing something unique and clear about Jesus in each one of these stories. And so we get to dive into the beginning here with the visitation of the Magi. And I don't know if you've ever been to church before or what you think sermons are or Bible readings in churches, Um, but for the next three weeks, we get the opportunity to open ourselves up to God manifesting himself to you in a real way palpable way. I hope you think of church and these stories and what we're doing as a community as more than just kind of coming and listening to something and some ideas. Wouldn't you love if the person of Jesus Christ was revealed to you, manifested in an actual way? So we are praying that light bulbs today through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not me that does this, it's God who manifests himself to us just goes, and we see Jesus for who he is. Sound good? Let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, arise and shine your light upon us. We pray that we would be able to experience that great prayer in the New Testament. Sleepers, awake. Christ will shine on you. Wake us up this morning, Lord. Shine into our darkness. We pray all this. In the name of him who is merciful and comes to bring a light, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we begin the the season of Epiphany with the Feast of the Magi or the story of the wise men. And no matter how new you are to Christianity or how much you know about the Bible, you probably know about the story because it's so entrenched in pop culture and suburban lawns and you see the little three kings uh, around the nativity. But uh, this is much more than a cute Christmas story. It's really deep. It's really provocative. It's really beautiful. There's so much going on here. And in order to understand it and to let God kind of turn this light bulb on for us, I want us to focus on three things this morning. The scandal of the Magi, these guys, the journey of the Magi, and the heart of the Magi. So first we begin with the scandal of the the Magi. At the heart of this story is a provocation. It's a shock. It's a scandal. The word in this passage 
that is sometimes translated as wise men is the Greek word magi, which I've been saying. Um, it's the plural form of the Greek magos, which is where we get our word magician. Um, and try to shed all your preconceived notions about this story from whatever you've seen on lawns or in Christmas stories. It never says these guys are kings. Do you notice that? It also never says there's three of them. It's pretty shocking. All it says is in verse 1. Look at it with me. A magi from the east, which is probably Arabia. And who are these guys? I, they were, as I chose to translate, I kind of took the liberty to do my own little translation for the gospel reading this morning. They were astrologers. Uh, they worshiped the stars. They used them to predict things on earth. They used divination. They used all kinds of pagan forms of magic. Um, my wife and I were laughing this week. If these guys were in Harry Potter, they would be in Slytherin, and they would be experts in the dark arts. Um, today, it's hard to kind of translate what this would be like, but they're like an elite academic form of like tarot card readers. Maybe like new, kind of sleek, chic, new age, spiritualist type thing. Every single time in the New Testament, besides this story, that the word magi is used, it's negative. In the Gospel of Acts, when the apostles would go to a city and they would start preaching the gospel, the magi in that town would get angry and throw the apostles into prison because the preaching of the gospel hurt their dark arts business. In the Old Testament... Everything that these guys do is again and again forbidden by God. Don't use divination, don't worship the stars, don't do any of this stuff. So these guys are Gentile, pagan, idol worshipers. So here's the scandal. God had been working through the chosen people of Israel to distinctly manifest his glory and his presence for all of salvation history. And God himself finally comes, he steps into the world in Jesus Christ. And who shows up at his birthday party? Tarot card readers. Slytherin guys. And they come to worship him. They're filled with joy. And they open up their treasure chest to him. Look at verse 1 with me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, astrologers, magi, wise men came from the east. That word behold means look. It's like, ah, with an exclamation point. Anytime there's an angel, it says, behold, an angel. It's kind of like, whoa. So you need to read here. Now, in the days after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, oh my gosh, magi showed up. And here's what makes this even more interesting. Notice Jesus isn't in the stable, so scholars think that this is probably a couple years, maybe two years after Jesus was born. So there'd been a lot of people who maybe had come to see Jesus during this time. And this is in Matthew. Matthew only records one story after Jesus is born until he was 30 years old. One story, one visitation, and he chooses this one. So not only is the presence of these guys just scandalous and crazy, so is the fact that Matthew decided this is the only story he wanted to include. It's shocking. Now, why is that? Why do you think Matthew decided to include this story? What's the point of the story? What's the manifestation? What's the light bulb that the Bible wants to turn on in our hearts and in our heads? Put simply, the Jewish Messiah has not just come to save the people of Israel. He's come to be a light for the whole world, including non-Jewish people 
which the word for that is Gentiles, which is what I am. This story is the first time that Jesus is manifested to the nations. That's why the church always reads this on the Feast of Epiphany. He's revealed to the whole world. It's where God clearly demonstrates that he is Lord of and loves and has come for everybody. Doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, what your ethnicity is. He's come to bring you a light. Um, did you notice all the readings today are so good? Oh my gosh. Uh, that one in Isaiah talks about a light coming up and shining and all the nations coming to bring gifts. And then Paul talks about this later in Ephesians when he says there's been this mystery that no one has, has known, but now it's been manifest that Jesus has come for everybody. Even Gentiles are partakers of the same promise. And Paul had to have been thinking of this. Did you know, what does uh, Paul say that Jesus brings to the Gentiles? Treasures and riches. Did you notice that in the Ephesians reading? And what do the nations do to Jesus? They bring him their treasures. Because Jesus has come to lavish upon all peoples the riches and the treasures of his grace. Now, for many of us, just to pause here for a second, the Gentile Jewish scandal might not shock us a ton because if you're a Gentile like me, maybe you've gotten used to it over 2,000 years. Um, but it should. But it also, I think, still challenges us because everybody, especially if you've been in church for a while or even if you've not been, you kind of have an idea, this kind of gut reaction of who you think Jesus is for and not for. We kind of all do this without thinking about it. Some folks, you're like, oh, Jesus might actually be really good for them. You know, it's like a book you'd want to recommend. Like, I think you might actually like this. And other people, you're like, oh, they would, they would never do this. You know, this, they would hate this, or this would be too much, or it's not their culture, or like whatever. But that's where this scandal really challenges us. That's where the behold of, oh my gosh, magi. It is never our place to project on people if they need Jesus or not, because everybody needs Jesus. There's not a single person in Madison who does not need the light and love and forgiveness and the riches of Jesus Christ. And there's not a single person in Madison for whom Jesus did not come, die, and rise again. Amen? That's the scandal of the Magi. What? Behold! Ah! Astrologers from the East. That's the first kind of epiphany light bulb. The second thing is the journey of the Magi. How in the world did these guys get to Bethlehem? Or to put it another way, it's one thing to say that the gospel's for everybody and Jesus is for everybody, but how do they get to him? Turns out this story has a shape, kind of a, a flow. The, the Magi's journey has an arc to it, and I'm not the first person to point this out, but it's really powerful and it's, it's true for all of us. So first... We're going to walk through it here, so flip to your bulletin with me. What page is it on? Jack, you're always the first there. Oh, you're not there. Come on, man. Nine. I want you to look at this with me. Let's look at first two. First, God uses the stars to draw them to Bethlehem. Verse two, where is he who has been king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It's the only thing these guys say. Second part of their journey is Scripture. Let's read on in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I'll talk about that later. And all Jerusalem was with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, 
he inquired of them where the Christ, or the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, this is Isaiah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And third, Scripture leads alongside creation in the star to the person of Jesus. So look at verse 9 with me. And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The journey of the Magi is one from creation to the scriptures to the person. And though all of our stories are unique in all of history, there's a part of the shape that remains true. So first, God uses whatever is in front of us. He uses creation. He draws us to himself. He beckons us to himself. Psalm 19 is a really famous part of the Old Testament. It says that all creation is saying something. It says that day to day pours forth speech. So it could be mountains, could be music, could be mathematics, if you're into that kind of thing. Could be love, could be relationships. Whatever it is, all of us experience this deep draw, this beckon of eternity. Uh, a couple months ago, we talked about, we all feel, this is kind of a pretentious term, but we talked about it, transcendental homelessness that draws us to God. We all feel this deep, deep draw to the transcendent from all of the creation that's around us. And no matter how many times you read Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, it will never go away, I promise. We feel it. And another thing I love is that God specifically uses what's in front of these specific people. So these guys are astrologers. They study the stars. And what does God use? Stars. Later, his disciples are blue-collar fishermen who know nothing about astrology. And what does God use to manifest himself to those guys? Fish. I was a weird little indie music-loving kid in high school, and one of the most profound moments when I experienced the love and power of God was while I was listening to an 80s experimental band called the Cocktoo Twins. Now, some of you guys probably don't even know who they are and could care less about the Cocktoo Twins, but I do, and God used it in my life because all creation is his. He can use fish, he can use stars, and he can use the Cocktoo Twins. It's all his, and he uses it. He draws people to himself. But the journey does not end there. And that's really, really important. There's a burgeoning industry of kind of a woke spirituality that even can be labeled as Christian that just stops there. You know, it's like take a hike in the mountains, find out your Enneagram number, and you're good. But that's, doesn't, that's not how it works for the Magi. I think this is really important. The stars get them to Bethlehem, but things were still hazy. See, what creation is telling us and revealing to us it can only get us so far. It can bring some shapes and colors into the frame, but they're still fuzzy. The second part of the journey is Scripture, which brings the picture into sharp clarity. This is really important in, the, in these guys' journey, and I think it's really, really cool. It's Scripture which defines and explains what creation is revealing. It's Scripture which manifest to us 
the epiphany of what the world is saying. That's a mouthful. So maybe you've experienced this before. If you've been reading the Bible, you've been like, oh my gosh, that's it. I've never been able to put that into words, but that is it. I've never, I've dreamed about that, but I've never known that was it. It starts defining your experience to you. The revelation of creation is incomplete without Scripture, and that's why Psalm 19, that psalm I talked about before that talks about creation constantly declaring the glory of God and saying stuff, the second half of it ends up worshiping and talking about Scripture. Not worshiping Scripture, but worshiping God through Scripture. They go together. And that's why the Magi get to Bethlehem and go, hey, where is the Messiah? We got here to worship the King of the Jews. Where is he going to be born? And what happens is... Everybody gets together, and they crack open Isaiah, and they have a Bible study. And they go, oh, Bethlehem, that's where he's supposed to be born. And it's like, awesome, that's it. Scripture brings the message of the stars into focus. But here is the kicker. It doesn't end there. And this might be kind of shocking, but it is just as dangerous and perilous, maybe even more so, to just end with Scripture as it is to just end with creation. That's because Scripture is pointing to a person. To use an analogy, it brings a picture of a person into focus, but it's still the picture of a person that you're meant to actually meet, shake hands with, and know. In one of the more fascinating debates that Jesus has with some Bible nerds, and I can call them that because I'm a Bible nerd, guys who love the Bible and just want to study it all the time, He tells these guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Whoa. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're holding the picture of me in your hand, but you've not met me, and I'm the one that gives you life. It's not the scriptures. Be like finding a treasure map and thinking that the map was the treasure. And sadly, this this trap is all too easy to fall in, and many are the fallen slain. It's really easy to, you know, lots of us can fall into the end with creation, spirituality category, but this one of ending with Scripture and just kind of idolizing Scripture preys on the religious people. So you can go to church your whole life and never meet Jesus. I know many scholars, professors, and pastors who know a lot about the Bible, but they stop there. And this is my danger. So I say this is something that I personally have had to work through and am still working through of getting to the person. When you just stop with scripture, it allows the Bible to turn from being someone's voice to just data, which allows you to kind of stand over it, critique it, take it or leave it. It stops beating the words of someone who meets you with a beating heart, who loves you and has the power to expose you, body, flesh, and soul. I think it is very significant that after the Magi have the Bible study, they crack open Isaiah, they have to take a journey to the person. I also find that it's very interesting that there are other people there who know about the same star reading the same text who don't take the journey. Jesus would meet a lot of people who knew the Bible, and Jesus was standing right in front of them, and they never connected to who he was. The third part of the journey at last leads them to the person himself, Jesus Christ. And it culminates in worship, 
in joy. Exceeding joy, like it says. It leads to the opening of their treasures to him who would open up all of his eternal treasures back to them. They experience that eternal itch being eternally scratched. God is still doing this today, and this is our journey. Creation calls to us. God speaks to you, and he uses creation in so many unique ways, unique to you, your personality, to me. But then that leads us to Scripture, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses that clarity of Scripture to lead us to the person, Jesus Christ, and we meet him. We have that same experience that the wise men have. To stop for a second, before we go on, I think one of the things for me that's been a a cool thing for me to meditate on is this week is where are you on this journey? Some of you might feel the the deep, what the Bible calls the deep calling to deep. You might feel those deep longings to know God. Uh, You might have a star in your own life that's kind of drawing you and beckoning you to something deeper. And it's bringing some shapes and colors into view, but it's kind of hazy. Maybe what could bless you is coming into a community and doing what the Magi were able to do, which is saying, hey, let's crack open a Bible and ask these questions that I'm being drawn to ask to which the gospel is the answer. This is a place where we do what they did. We crack open the Bible and say, where is Jesus? Brings that into view. Some of you might be on the second one and know the Bible really well, but it's just data. It's become a treasure map with no treasure, which is the worst kind of treasure map. <laughs> My exhortation to you, because this is what, where I've been so many times, is to dive into the life of the church in word and sacrament and pray to Jesus, knock on his door, that he would reveal himself to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Today, he does this all the time in the same way. Scripture points you to a person. Have you ever heard somebody's testimony and heard them say, you know, my life was awful, it was dark, it was the worst thing ever, but then I found the Bible, and the Bible was everything. No, what do do they say? Then I met Jesus. But guess what's a part of that? Scripture. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you're at on that journey, that is exactly what our community is doing. It's almost like, even though we meet in the same place every week, we are all like the Magi on a journey to the person of Jesus. Amen? We're a community coming home. Now, I can't talk about this and not tell stories because to say this happens all the time without actually talking about it could leave the story of the Magi in kind of fairyland world. But I want to tell two stories, even though I could tell many, just to try to get our fingers under this. The first one is of a music professor I had in college. And He was an aural skills professor. And those of you who are musicians know that these are the most brutal classes in music college because you have to learn how to hear intervals. It's miserable. Josh was laughing. He knows what I'm talking about. Um, Anyways, this guy is not like a very vibrant Christian guy, like very interior music theory type man. And I had lunch with him one time, and I said, how did you become a Christian? And he told me with a straight face, well, I wasn't raised in a Christian background. I wasn't religious at all. I was moving to New York, I was in a van, I was driving in the middle of the highway by myself, and I heard an audible voice say to me, blank name, everything you can see I made, it's my creation, I made you and you're a part of it. And he said at that moment, God filled my car, and I burst into tears uncontrollably, and I lost control of my van going 80 miles an hour. 
And he said, the van miraculously slowed down and went over to the side of the road and stopped until I was able to get myself back together again. That's a star, right? Now, but it was the same for him. He kept on driving to New York, and he said, I knew I had to find a church. So he drove, entered into New York City, found a church, walked in and said, God just spoke to me on the highway. What do I do? And they went, cracked open the scriptures, and he eventually met Jesus and still knows him to this day. The second one, uh, this is a great one. This is one of my favorite stories. This is about a, a Muslim man who converted in a really unique way, which I'll tell in a second, but these are his words. So he published this. This is not me paraphrasing, and I'll just read it. One night, the only food my wife and I had was a small portion of macaroni. My wife prepared it very nicely. Then one of her friends knocked on the door, and I told myself, the macaroni is not sufficient for even the two of us. So how will it be enough for three of us? If you know anything about Arabic culture, uh, hospitality is really, really important. So that's what he's talking about there. But because we have no other custom, I'm reading him, we opened the door and she came in to eat with us. While we were eating, the macaroni started to multiply. It became full in the bowl. I suspected that something was wrong with my eyes, so I started rubbing them. I thought maybe my wife hit some macaroni under the small table, so I checked, but there was nothing. My wife and I looked at each other, but because the guest was there, we said nothing. Afterward, I lay down on the bed, and as I slept, Isa, which is the Arabic word for Jesus, came to me and asked me, do you know who multiplied the macaroni? I said, I don't know. He said, I am Isa al-Masih, which is Jesus the Messiah. If you follow me, not only the macaroni, but your own life will be multiplied. When you read the story of the Magi, it sounds fanciful, right? You know what's weirder than a star? Macaroni. (laughs) I could tell more and more stories. God is doing this all the time, and he always has. And every single one of your stories and my stories is unique. And even if it doesn't involve a highway or macaroni, it is no less miraculous. You live in God's world. And at the center of everything, the one who created it and in which all things hold together is Jesus, and it is drawing you to him. This is our journey. God uses what's in front of us, and Scripture bears witness to him. Everything in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation points to the person. That's what we're doing this morning. Lastly, I want to talk about the heart of the Magi. This one will be a little bit shorter. Um, the best stories, the best literature and art doesn't finger whack you. Every time you're reading something or watching a movie and you kind of feel an agenda start to rise in a character or the movie, the art kind of gets soured, doesn't it? Um, the best stories invite you into an experience where you can kind of live with a, a character and feel kind of the human experience of whatever story is happening. And one of the most powerful tools that authors use to allow you to kind of immerse yourself in a situation is called doubling. So an author will put two characters in the same experience to experience the same thing, but who react in different ways, and you're able to kind of enter in and see those different options. In this story, you have a powerful case of doubling. Herod and the Magi. Both are elite people. Both are clearly educated. Neither are Orthodox practicing Jews. 
Herod maybe like semi, kind of, but not really. Both read the same text that point to the same person. Both knew about the star. Both know about the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. But they each react completely differently. You see, the journey for Herod and the Magi ends at the foot of a king. And for both of them, the reaction, there was really two responses which they both show. One is joyful submission. The other is hardened resistance to the coming of a king. Herod is a Roman puppet king. He's wealthy. He doesn't have any physical needs. He likes where he's at in his life. He likes being in control. And so when he hears of the Jewish king, the Messiah who's come, he is terrified. He's furious. You should hear his voice quaking when in verse 8 he says, bring him to me so I can worship him as well. He reacts violently to the thought that someone might come and take the throne away from him. That's why he slaughters all the children right after this story in Bethlehem because he can't handle it. The Magi are Herod's double. They, the Slytherin dark arts guys, fall down before Jesus. Their hearts are so open and warm. They bring him all of their gifts before him. They're thrilled that he's come. And they go home by another way. Their lives are changed. Uh, I cannot help but read that and not think of the James Taylor song. Anybody who's a James Taylor fan? Go home by another way? Okay. Um, But yeah, they go home a different way. There's a lot you can read into that, but their lives are changed. They're thrilled at the coming of the king. And we don't know much uh, about these guys beyond this story, but we do know that in this story, they are the great example to be modeled of faith because they rejoice at the coming of the king. So at the end of the day, what matters is not your background. It's not where you're from. It's not how you've sinned, what sins you've sinned, how often you've sinned. None of that matters. What matters is how you react at the coming of the king. Is your heart open to falling down before him and receive him in your life? Or do you react with hardened resistance to that thought? The choice is the same for us. The choice is just as timely because the king is coming again. He's alive. Amen? So we want to fall down. And because Jesus has come to lavish upon us treasures riches. We bow before him and we open up ours and we give them to him. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.